gloomy, mostly Euclidean confines of Castle Gormagon, upon the lofty wind-blasted heights of the Plateau of Lang, I am Confucius the Ecumenical Volgi, and this is Radio Gormagon. Greetings, wise and well-versed digital denizen. I am, of course, the Tsar of Muscovy, your host running solo today. I'm speaking to you now, not from our castle's ghostly confines, but from scenic and rustic Muscovy, a tiny town quietly tucked away in mid-America. You might believe Muscovy is a small and pathetic little town, but don't be fooled. It really is small and pathetic. I wanted to take some time today to talk about America's two-party political system. You've been told a lot since 2016 and in the last couple of weeks, that America has never been so polarized, so divisive, so diametrically opposed in terms of its politics. Uh, that's surprisingly not true. America has been far more opposed politically. The 1860s come to mind as a fairly stark example. But even outside of the Civil War, there were plenty of times America has seen worse rivalries. Now, keep in mind, a lot of people would think that this is the worst it's ever been. These are the same people who are triggered by Kanye West, red hats, and making the OK symbol with your fingers. But today's political rivalry is uh, chump stuff compared to the olden days. Now, let me get to that in a minute. There's something I want to say first. First, I'm very worried about this podcast sounding dated in a few years' time. So to prevent that, I'm going to talk about recent history, not-so-recent history, and what I see as an alternative future. I'm not making any new predictions. I'm merely suggesting uh, kind of a what-could-have-been scenario. Now, I have made predictions. In fact, nearly all of them came exactly right on the nose. Okay, I, I did say that I didn't think the Democrats would be dumb enough to hold an impeachment trial on Donald Trump because that would tank their popularity with the base. Well, maybe I wasn't exactly wrong on that. But back when President Obama was reelected all the way back in 2012, remember that far? I did say that his re-election would pretty much destroy the Democrats as a functional party, and you wouldn't see the results until about 2016. Now, I want to explain why I said that. At the time of his 2008 election, the media were happily pointing out that the Democrats have never been so unified. Everybody on their side rallied around Obama. Well, maybe not the Clintons, which is usually a bad recipe for a party. The Republicans learned this lesson under Hoover and under Nixon. Uh, the Democrats should have learned it under Roosevelt. When you unify around a single leader for long enough, you start the purity tests that drive people out. Wait, Tsar, you awful vengeful psychopath. What's that about Roosevelt? He got elected four times. And what about Reagan? What about Kennedy? Those are great examples, right? Well, those are great examples. While Roosevelt was popular, the party fractured when Truman took over and his influence was gone. And Reagan and Kennedy, both, did not cause their parties to be unified around them. Tons of Republican politicians loathed Reagan, and folks like LBJ actively worked behind the scenes to bypass Kennedy's reluctant liberalism. Don't mistake popular appeal for intra-party appeal. Just because the people like a president doesn't mean the party does. Now let's go back to Obama. While he was president, over 1,000 Democrat politicians in the House, Senate, state assemblies lost their jobs, replaced by Republicans. Some of us realized even then that the talent pool so to speak, was getting very shallow for Democrats. Usually when a person becomes president, he or she, sorry Hillary, I meant he, rewards endorsements and bribes rivals with cabinet positions. And often those folks retire after a couple of years and go into the media. That paves the way for all sorts of newcomers, like Barack Obama, 
to move up quickly and become the next big sensation. Now, under Obama, almost all of those people were driven out. You didn't have the rising stars take anyone's places, right? So all the in-house close friends of his and the rivalries like Hillary Clinton all moved up and then moved out, but there was nobody taking their places. So in 2016, you wound up with Hillary Clinton and Bernie Sanders. Now, let's think about this. Quite a few people in 2015 said, Hillary Clinton, seriously, that's the best they can do? She was a person bereft of any solid experience outside of a lightweight senatorial position and a blatantly bungled cabinet position under Obama. Her previous experience doing anything was nothing. She was Bill Clinton's wife, who was this petty, mousy type, ex-ineffective lawyer who burst onto the national scene with a wholly unpopular health care package she evidently didn't understand. So, yeah, a small number of us replied, Hillary Clinton is the best they can do. And her opponent? A whack-job lunatic who pretends to be a socialist, even though he himself has lived high on the capitalist hog teat, who was so contrary and he refused to even identify formally as a member of the Democratic Party until 2015, and then only for participating in fundraising and debates. If you had presented Bernie Sanders as a presidential candidate, even to Jimmy Carter in 1976, Carter would have gotten lightheaded from the laughing. Sanders, even then, was recognized as a kook who didn't mean what he was saying. And he certainly hasn't changed. The Tsar admits that he assumed the media and pop culture would whisk Clinton to the presidency in 2016. But Donald Trump did what a lot of successful politicians did. He admitted he wasn't a party loyalist, would probably annoy the heck out of the lifetime party politicians, and wouldn't drive them out solely because he won. And he won. People like that message, I guess, especially after everything I just said. And he won. And while he absolutely annoys the longtime loyalists, he hasn't driven many of them, of them out of the party, except for some media types who, you know, clearly play for the other side anyway. So here we are in 2020, where the best the Democrats can manage includes a small town mayor because anyone higher up is bailed out. And this includes a former vice president who can't even get his old boss to say anything positive about him. It includes a bunch of senators who can't point to a major accomplishment that doesn't involve outright lies. And it includes a couple of billionaires clearly jealous of Trump one-upping them. And yeah, it still includes Bernie Sanders. Are the Democrats so desperate for a candidate that they would take a geriatric hippie with anger management issues and a desire for bloodthirsty control who continues to insist he's a socialist? Well, right now, as of this recording, he's in the lead. So, yeah, they would. And this is how bad it's gotten. And 2024 will be worse, folks, because the next so-called rising stars in the party will be more small-town mayors and big-city politicians. You know that corpulently corrupt alderman taking back Ellie bribes and hooking up with prostitutes? You're going to see him on the debate stage, if not in four years and eight years. Now, Obama was such a unifying figure that everyone else in his party can't hold that unity together. Now that he's thankfully out of the picture and all of his sycophants and former rivals have better paying gigs on cable news, the folks that got left behind after his rapture turn out to be balkanized petty toddlers demonstrating the perfect power vacuum. Remember how Australia looked in the Mad Max movies? That's the Democratic Party right now. Ironically, it's going to take a Mad Max, a basic hardcore person trained to survive on his own skills and establish a traditional family structure to pull some of them through it to survival. So how did Democrats get this way? In my mind, it's a natural extension of who they've always been, the party of not-Republicans. When you stand only in opposition to your, well, opposition, you have no core principles to build unity. Now, I'm not exonerating Republicans here, by the way. They're pretty messed up, too. But while they lack a core principle, 
they have some basic ideas favorably that link most of them together, maybe a little lazily. But still, even that is stronger than being a perpetual opposition party. The Democrats have been around since before the Declaration of Independence, by the way. Certainly not by that name, but let's be very clear about what I'm talking about. And if you're looking for an outstanding book, it's 45 pages of big print, folks. You can read this on a train ride home from work. Check out Michael Walsh's The People Versus the Democratic Party. It walks you through the party's entire history, no holds barred. If you're a historical expert or or if you're brand new to political thinking, you'll like this book. I suspect it helped contribute to the uh, new walk away meme on social media in which people are bailing on the Democrats in record numbers as the party and its history uh, becomes better known. Anyway, I'm not going to read the book to you. In fact, I haven't even looked inside it before I decided to fire up the microphone here. You can read it in the meantime. I'm going to spout off some historical tidbits that you might not know right after this commercial break. Are you a director or manager of human resources, information technology, or marketing? Did you just roll out a non-functional payroll software because the sales rep took you to a decent lunch? Did your network blow up because you only read a white paper about security? Was your idea of spring-loaded boxing gloves swag bags poorly received by customers? You need a scapegoat. Scapegoat Consulting has been providing blameworthy professionals since 1994. Starting at $500 cash, our consultants will let you parade them around in front of the president, CEO, or board of directors, admit everything was their fault, and let you fire them on the spot. For higher fees, you can tear up an imaginary contract in front of everyone while screaming, we'll never use your company again. For $5,000 and up, We'll keep quiet about the whole thing for years to come. Why lose your job? Bring in one of our pros, pay them cash on the spot, and you can fire them out of a cannon in front of everybody. Figuratively speaking. You look tough as hell, they take the blame, and nobody is the wiser. Our specialty, can't actually sue us for damages contract, is easy to read and even easier to sign. Ask about our extended scapegoat as a service ongoing payment plan where you can not only blame us for everything that goes wrong all year long, but we'll even provide consultants who will swear you need a raise and more competent staff everywhere your bosses will need to hear it. Don't get caught in another bad business decision. Call Scapegoat Consulting today to see why we're the ones you'll want to fire over and over again. And now back to the history of American political polarization. Political parties existed well before our first elections, but George Washington was so overwhelmingly popular, he was elected without needing a two-party system. As you probably remember hearing somewhere, both Washington and John Adams despised the idea of political parties. Adams once remarked to me a couple times that I met him that nothing good comes out of polarizing the public and all parties polarize. Uh, However, Alexander Hamilton disagreed. He wanted a strong federal framework to strengthen up the country long enough for the states to stabilize, so he founded the Federalist Party. Washington and Adams, well, Adams really didn't like Hamilton at all, by the way, were assigned as Federalists by their association with Hamilton. But both of them really didn't care for the party or its inner workings. Adams, as it happened, mentioned in a letter that he'd prefer if people stopped calling him a Federalist. He didn't like it. But in response to all this, a rival party popped up that believed in a limited government and its emphasis on states' rights. Its first major superstar was Thomas Jefferson, who called the party the Republican Party. The media at the time called it the Democrat Party, and before long the two terms merged to become the Democratic-Republicans. This probably sounds weird to modern ears, but it really was a strange blend of libertarians or limited government folks and slaveholders 
who disliked the Yankee Federalists and their abolitionist views. You can imagine this wasn't a very stable party. Now, when Adams ran for president in 1796, party politics came out and would be recognizable to us today. The Democratic-Republicans smeared Adams using the classic FUD, fear, uncertainty, and doubt, that Adams was actually even sane. He definitely wanted to turn America back into a property of England. Federalists countered by revealing that Thomas Jefferson did indeed appear to father numerous children with one of his slaves, which was pretty much accepted as fact, even then, by the way. It nearly destroyed the friendship between Adams and Jefferson, and the party faithful were even physically brawling in the streets. And it got worse in 1800, 1804, 1808, 1812. Actually, I could go on. Americans were polarized, resentful, and even intermittently rebellious. President Monroe, a Federalist, thought that the parties were destroying American unity and even attempted party reform. It didn't work. Uh, the Federalists collapsed as a party in 1824. The Democratic-Republicans were unopposed, basically, but were so disorganized with so many candidates with fundamentally different views that they couldn't even figure out who was president. And Congress had to pick John Quincy Adams. Now, Andrew Jackson had enough of that, and he reformed the party into the Democrats we know today. Now, this was an overtly pro-slavery party. The anti-slavery re Republicans were effectively boxed out uh, actually, much in the same manner, today's Republicans are showing pro-life candidates the door. And they linked up with other folks upset over Andy Jackson's handling of the nullification crisis, the uh, growth of the Masons, and you know, other hot topics, uh, to form the Whig Party. Now, the Whigs were not a very strong party, even though they had a bunch of successes in various elections. Uh, the lack of a single platform, uh, the strong economy at the time, the popularity of Democratic celebrity presidents, uh, Pierce, made life difficult for the Whigs, but uh, some Whig ideas like abolition, uh, rule of law, meritocracy, protection of minorities, low taxes, and so on, were pretty popular around the country. They experimented with a few different names, but you already know what happened. With the start of the secession, uh, parties split up all over the place, and a number of the Whigs joined up to establish the Republican Party. Now, the Civil War is where the Democrats really should start their history, as the Jeffersonian version uh, just as that ended with Andrew Jackson, Jackson's party ended with the Civil War. The Democrats were effectively the party of the South, of slavery, and became synonymous with the Confederacy. At the end of the war, Lincoln offered amnesty, which allowed the Democrats to run for office nationally again. Now, this is where the Democrats became the opposition party once again. They opposed Republican efforts to end slavery. They used the Klan to terrorize, uh, had Jim Crow laws to rig elections, uh, used media control to bias voters. The Democrats had a difficult time sustaining success, and soon the New York Democrats were buying votes of the Irish and Italian Catholics just to stay in power. And this worked, although it also linked them to organized crime in the Northeast. Now, you know what happens next. In the 1900s, the Democrats under Wilson embraced a leftist approach to social control. Uh, Roosevelt used near-fascist control to try to get around constitutional limitations in which socialism became acceptable. Uh, Johnson in the 1960s pulled the black vote away from the Republicans, and somehow the Republicans who freed the slaves ended Jim Crow uh, voted for the Civil Rights Act. They became the bad racists. And by the 1970s, the Democrats were courting women voters. By the 1980s, they brought in a large uh, Hispanic contingent, and by the 1990s, were appealing to gays and Muslims. Well, since the Civil War, the Democrats have consistently acted as that opposition party. Find any reasonably identifiable group, organize them, and turn them into a Democrat voting bloc. This is generally without any core or guiding principle to create unity other than if the Republicans are for it, we're against it. 
Republicans like lower taxes because it stimulates economic growth. Democrats are therefore for higher taxes, but that's it. That's why high tax hikes under Democratic legislatures never seem to produce anything of value. The money just goes away. Now, Republicans dislike regulations because they complicate free trade. Democrats like regulations because, well, it sounds like bad guys are being punished, I guess. I don't need to go on and on here. My point is that Republicans have very few core ideas, but all of them have a rational explanation at some level, however real or theoretical. Now, Democrats can't easily explain any of their policies other than Republicans don't like them. Go ahead, ask around. Now, consider abortion, which I think is an archetypical crime worse than slavery. Uh, Republicans protect the sanctity of life. Democrats have some hazy language about a woman's right to choose, whatever that means from a practical standpoint, not because they think killing babies is morally fundamental, but because Republicans hate it, and that's really it. Anyway, that's the history of our two-party system. Republicans, uh, who have an awkward blend of libertarian leave-it-alone-ism and Republican help-as-many-as-you-can-ism, and Democrats, who are against both ideas, strict government oversight over the individual's options. Not because the latter makes any sense, but because it's the opposite of the Republican viewpoints. Democrats have been an opposition party even when they've been overwhelmingly in charge of all three branches of government. And that's bizarre, and they might be the longest-lasting opposition party in world history. I'm not sure, because they don't give it up when they win. And they can win, and they have won big. With their talent pool drying up now, there are some serious warning signs that this party needs to change, or it will dissolve. Now, I promised you an idea of what could be the case. This isn't a prediction, just uh, a logical preference, let's call it. I think the Democrats should go away as a party. The Civil War is over. They can just admit they lost. Instead, I do see a need for two political parties, but I think it's the Republican Party who should split up. That's right. The GOP can do it again like they have before. Mm, Twice, actually. Split into the two halves that they seem to want to be. Have a, well, a Republican Party. That's for a strong military, controlled welfare programs, activism, some public spending, and a bit of technocracy. The other party can be a libertarian party, which is for small government, low military interventionism, free drugs and booze and sex or whatever, and very low taxes. When times are good, people can vote for the Republicans, spend a little money. When times are tighter, people can vote libertarian, save a little money, get a little freedom. This would make it super simple for people to switch parties at elections, or at least make it clear that voting for the other party isn't selling your soul. Now, interestingly, this has already begun. As political parties begin to weaken in the modern age, we have an increasing number of politicians or candidates switching parties in order to run or preserve a job. Um, Now, that's always been the case, but you're seeing it more and more and more, and it's not being challenged by the other party. As far as a Republican and Libertarian Party setup goes, the old Kennedy Democrats will probably happily jump on the Republican platform. The diehard liberals can jump on the Libertarian one. The rest of the Democrats, you know, the racists, hippies, control freaks, progressives, socialists, uh, they can fade away quickly. And while this wouldn't end political rivalries or clean up college bias or balance the media or do anything miraculous, it would put the voters in far more control over how the country was run. A course correction could be made every four years or so, carefully and sometimes even gently. Pandering would still occur, of course, but the ridiculous promises to screw the voters of the other party would be tempered. Um, you wouldn't see the dramatic punishments and executive orders of the Obama years because, 
opposition stunts, like elections having consequences, would be less essential. They wouldn't be as important. Could this alternative future result in polarization? Absolutely. All it takes is for one party to feel threatened by the other's lengthy domination and opposition politics uh, is right back in swing. But because the party would still have some basic principles beyond mere opposition, I think the effects would be a lot more muted. Unfortunately for my wonderful idea, I admit I'm hard-pressed to point to any real political example of this functioning anywhere in the world. But most other political systems around the world are parliaments, where you see numerous parties all competing to various degrees and forming coalitions, rather than forming core ideas. Now, I want to add one thing. I don't think a reasonable third party is going to appear on a large scale. If you think about the history of American politics, there hasn't been a successful one. Federalists, Whigs, Democratic, Republicans, they weren't third parties. They were second parties that reorganized and repartnered. True third parties, like the Know Nothings, the Bull Mooses, uh, Bull Meese? Uh, the Green Parties, they're, they're just, they were always temporary fads that split from the two main parties and are later reabsorbed by them. And my thought about a Republican and Libertarian split meshes with that reality. It's just one party, the GOP, splitting into two and reabsorbing the Democrats. Now, this isn't going to happen in 2024 or probably even in this generation. I don't know when it could happen or whether it's even feasible. You're welcome to your own analysis there. But such a move would be a major rebalancing of American political power that would likely play pretty well outside the main cities where, you know, the cities where you'd always have your local city Democrats hanging on and would be plausible in the context of American political history. And we'll see. I wouldn't hold your breath waiting for American politics to organize more intelligently. If history is indeed the guide, I expect it is, uh, then we're going to have more decades of worse polarization ahead. (sighs) Hooray for us. Well, I'm going to let you go. Thanks for listening this far, and we'll see you all later. Enjoy the rest of the seasons, everybody. My ice is melted. Oh, well.